So we thank uh, our witnesses for being here. We have a, a business meeting that will take just a moment. I think you all are aware of that. And we don't have enough members yet to take action. But what I thought I would do to speed things along is to begin discussing what we're going to do to get that um, out of the way. And I want to thank all the members who are here. Um, the business meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order. We have a number of items on the agenda today, including five pieces of legislation and a number of nominations. In addition to moving forward on resolutions that are bringing attention to important concerns like the growing numbers of displaced people around the world and continued threats to a free and independent, print, independent press in many countries, I'm pleased that we're able to work with some of our colleagues to consider legislation they previously sought to include in the NDAA. It also appears we will be able to move closer to having a confirmed legal advisor at the State Department as well as several new ambassadors. I want to thank my colleagues uh, for helping the committee work through these nominees in an appropriate fashion and to allow us to, to take these steps to move forward today. With that, I'd like to recognize a distinguished ranking member for any comments, Senator Card. Chairman, thank you very much. Uh, I very much appreciate your cooperation in um, the agenda we have today. Uh, let me start with the nominations, if I might, because uh, you have accommodated uh, the full co uh, committee considerations of nominees that were heard as recently as this week, and I thank you for that. Uh, these are career uh, diplomats that are heading towards important countries, and our action today will allow us to have those ambassadors in place, I think, in an earlier stage, and I thank you very much for accommodating uh, the, uh, the full co committee considerations of these important positions. And as you put it, also the legal advisor to the Department of State, Brian James Egan, and I thank you for including those, and also Janet Yellen, uh, in her capacity to be the U.S. Alter alternate governor of the International Monetary Fund. In addition, we do have some re uh, resolutions uh, that, and, and legislation that are before us. Uh, I particularly want to thank you uh, for accommodating the World Refugee Day in a timely way with Senator Rubio. I introduced this resolution and just point out to the members of this committee the number of refugees today, and I took the floor of the Senate to talk about this. We're at the levels uh, after World War II. This is a shocking number. 60 million people are displaced today. Uh, and those numbers are growing. They're not getting smaller because of the ongoing conflicts. I think all of us have seen the direct impact. Uh, we've been to Jordan. We've been to Turkey. We know what the refugees are causing to other countries uh, and that this is a humanitarian crisis and it is a regional stability crisis. And I thank you for allowing us to act on, on that resolution today. I, um, also, please, we're acting on the, uh, the resolution to reaffirm freedom of the press and recognizing uh, those who are involved, uh, their risk factors, uh, to ensuring the safety and security of the Iranian dissidents, uh, and uh, to uh, deal with this, uh, the Serbska 10th um, uh, anniversary of uh, that resolution. Uh, in regards to the resolution that I filed, in regards to, uh, uh, to the uh, issues and so we, there will be an amendment offered uh, that I will, I will call up on behalf of Senator Shaheen that I think that strengthens uh, that it, uh, and I will uh, ask consideration of it. Very good. Uh, in order again to move along and be ready when we have our 10th person here, um, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, mention the nominees. Um, 
I guess I actually cannot even move to proceed to Mark is on the hall. Okay. 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 I'll wait just one second. Mark is present and in the audience. Is, uh, okay. In the interest of time, I would ask the committee to proceed in block voice vote in consideration of the eight nominations before the committee. The Honorable Janet Yellen to be the U.S. Alternate Governor to the IMF. Mr. Brian Egan to be the Legal Advisor to the State Department. Ms. Jennifer Galt to be Ambassador to Mongolia. The Honorable Glenn Davies to be Ambassador to Thailand. Mr. William Height to be Ambassador to Mongolia. Mr. Utul Keshep to be Ambassador to Sri Lanka and Maldives. Mr. Elena, Mrs. Elena Teplitz to be Ambassador to Nepal. The Honorable David Hale to be the Ambassador to Pakistan. I, I want to thank all these nominees for their willingness to serve in these positions. Senator Cardin, I know you've addressed this. Do you have anything else you would wish to say? We do? Let's move them. Okay. Is there any senator who would like to speak to these nominees? Uh, if not, uh, if no, no further discussion, uh, is there a motion to approve all of these in block? Is there a second? There's a motion and a second, so moved and second. The question is the motion to approve the nominations. All those in favor say aye. All opposed? Hearing none, the ayes have it. The nominations are recommended to the full Senate. Next, we will consider Senate Res 204, a resolution recognizing the occasion of World Refugee Day. We thank Senator Cardin for bringing this resolution to the committee. As we have seen, the international systems for addressing plight of refugees and other displaced persons have been overwhelmed by the conflicts in Syria and Iraq in particular. But the other situations that Senator Cardin notes, such as in Ukraine, the Mediterranean, or Nigeria, also need to speak to this crisis. World Refugee Days. World Refugee Day calls upon us to reflect on what more can and should be done in the face of these overwhelming needs. Senator Cardin, would you like to make any additional comments? Uh, I, I've already commented about it, and again, I thank you for bringing this forward. This is an area that will require our committee's uh, attention in order to deal with this humanitarian crisis. Is there a motion to approve this resolution? Is there a second? So moved and second. The question on the motion to approve Senate Res 204. All those in favor say aye. All opposed? Hearing none, the ayes have it. The resolution is approved. Next, we'll consider SRS 207, a resolution recognizing threats to freedom of press and expression around the world, reaffirming freedom of press as a priority. In efforts of the United States government to promote democracy and good governance, we thank Senators Casey and Rubio for bringing this resolution to the committee on the occasion of World Press Day. We do well remember that journalists face real threats from criminal groups in conflict in a number of countries. Uh, their own government. Senator Cardin, would you like to make any additional comments? Uh, I've commented about this, and again, I thank you for bringing okay. this forward. Is there a motion to approve the legislation? Yeah, sorry, yes, sir. Chairman, uh, certainly I strongly support this. And when um, Reporters Without Borders talk about 69 journalists who were killed in 2014 in connection with their collection and dissemination of uh, news and information, it's incredibly important. Uh, I just point out that sometimes when we pass resolutions like this uh, in its broad strokes, we don't think about the specifics uh, of where this is meaningful. And it's meaningful in many parts of the world, including uh, in Cuba, where, in fact, independent journalists and bloggers are consistently arrested and jailed 
simply because of the views they express. So as uh, people uh, in the Senate seek to visit Cuba and to change our policies, uh, and I know they'll be strongly supportive of this resolution, I would hope that they would take the time and the opportunities to meet with independent journalists, human rights activists, political dissidents. Problem is, is that very often, uh, if you do that, then you don't get to meet with the re high regime officials. And that seems to be uh, the choice, and people make the choice, therefore, not to pursue human rights activists, independent journalists, and bloggers. So on the day that we're going to recognize World Press Freedom Day, it's important to actually, more, more than cast a vote, it's important to actually act in a way in which we are promoting global press freedom. Well, I thank the senator for making that point. It is a fact, and uh, I appreciate you highlighting that. And as we move ahead, certainly something uh, we need to continue to be cognizant of. I know that uh, I'll just I'll stop right there. I know we're going to have other discussions about this soon. Would anyone else like to speak to this resolution? Is there a motion to approve it? Is there a second? Second. So moved and seconded. The question is motion uh, to approve SREF 207. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The resolution is approved. Our last resolution today is a resolution expressing the sense of the Senate regarding Shabernitsa. We thank uh, Senator Cardin for bringing this resolution to the committee. It's important never to forget what took place there. I, rec I commend uh, Senator Cardin, who took leadership uh, he took a leadership role regarding this massacre and has sustained has a sustained commitment towards making sure we remember it. Senator Cardin, do you have any comments that you'd like to make regarding this? Uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, again, thank you for bringing this forward. It's been 20 years since nearly 8,000 Muslim men and boys were murdered at the hands of the Bosnian Serbs during the Bosnian War. Uh, the Srebrenica massacre uh, it must be uh, always remembered and I ap appreciate your willingness to, to consider this resolution uh, acknowledging the 20th anniversary of the massacre. Uh, Mr. Chairman, there is an amendment being, that I would like to call up at the appropriate time uh, by Senator Shaheen uh, that uh, encourages a more active U.S. role in the Western Balkans and calls for a permanent role for the International Commission for Missing People at The Hague. Uh, I believe this amendment is constructive, and I would encourage my colleagues to accept it. So you're bringing up the Shaheen Amendment That's for right. her. Is there a second? Second. A second. Uh, so moved and second. Uh, the question before us is a motion to approve, approve the Shaheen Amendment. All those in favor say aye. 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 All opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The Shaheen Amendment is agreed to. Are there any further amendments? Seeing none, is there a motion to approve the legislation so as amended? Moved, seconded. Somebody. So moved and seconded. The question is on the motion to approve SRES resolution SRES 211 as amended. All those in favor say aye. aye. All opposed? With that, the ayes have it. The resolution is approved. Mr. Chairman, I should have said that Senator Coons is, should be, uh, is added as a co-sponsor tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, duly noted. Next, we will turn to uh, S1643, the ensuring the safety and security of Iranian Dissidents in Iraq Act of 2015. With the current situation in Iraq as tumultuous as it is, a reporting requirement on Camp Liberty will be helpful to understand the current relationship between the dissidents housed there and the Iraqi government. 
The more information we can obtain regarding the current situation in Iraq, the better. The bill is originally a Senator Blunt amendment to the NDAA. Although we approved of the policy, we did not clear it as an amendment because it did not come through the committee. Hope we can pass this bill out of committee today, which we'll, we will consider with an amendment that I've offered to Senator, with Senator Blunt's support. Senator Cardinal, do you have any comments? No, again, I thank you for bringing this forward. Anyone? Yes. Mr. Chairman, this is something I've pursued for quite some time. And it's important in the context of whether the United States, when it goes into a country and says that it is going to do certain things, actually follows true. Because then the message globally is, in this case, the residents now of Camp Liberty were told, give up your weapons uh, and we will protect you by our military. And they were given a document to that effect. Uh, and then, of course, uh, they did that. They actually have provided us with information about the hearing that you're about to have on Iran at one of the facilities that we did not know about. And uh, at the end of the day, then we let them on their own. And many of them were killed. And that's just fundamentally wrong. And so uh, while I would have preferred seeing the certification because we need to be serious about our commitment to individuals so that when we go into another conflict or another place in the world, people will actually give up their arms, or in the case of Ukraine, give up their nuclear weapons, right. uh, and then ultimately believe that we are going to do what we say we are going to do. So I, 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 I support uh, the resolution. I think it's incredibly important. And uh, I look forward to an opportunity in which the United States shows leadership in this by accepting some of the residents of Camp Liberty as well uh, as we try to resettle them so that they can safely be out of Iraq once and for all. Well, I, I could not agree more. I have met uh, with many of the families affected. Um, and I think when we send uh, signals like this where we do not follow through on commitments that have been made, and I could list a series of those uh, in recent times, uh, it does harm us. It certainly harms the people that we've made commitments to. And with many of the complexities uh, that we already have in the world, it makes them even more difficult to resolve. So I thank you for bringing continual attention to this as chairman and as ranking member. And certainly, uh, I support this uh, very strongly. I do have an amendment. Um, does anyone else want to speak to this legislation? Um, I do have uh, a second degree. Um, does anyone else have a second degree? If not, uh, I would entertain a motion that we consider the Corker Amendment. So moved. So moved. Is there a second? Second. Thank you. So moved and second. The question is on the motion to approve the Corker Amendment. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Opposed? With, with that, the ayes have it. The Corker Amendment is agreed to. Are there any further amendments? Hearing none, is there a motion to approve the legislation as amended? So moved. Is there a second? There is. So moved and seconded. The question on the motion to approve 1643 is amended. That's the question. All those in favor say aye. All opposed. With that, the ayes have it. Uh, we have one more piece of legislation. It's my understanding uh, this is a Collins Amendment to the NDAA. Uh, it's my understanding there's still a, a one sentence uh, disagreement. Uh, I know Senator Flake and Senator Cardin have been working on this. Uh, it's my sense that based on where we are today, we want to hold this over to the next meeting. That's correct. Uh, I, I do hate to 
get the wrath of Senator Collins on this over the next couple of weeks, but I will I understand that's my job. But uh, I do hope we'll be able to work out uh, this uh, one sentence disagreement uh, in the interim and so hopefully speedily pass this through and hopefully pass it on the floor by unanimous consent. Uh, I think that concludes our business um, uh, for the business meeting. Um, I ask unanimous consent the staff be authorized to make technical and conforming changes without objection, so ordered. With that, the committee will stand adjourned as it relates to the business meeting, and we will move to our outstanding witnesses. Today's hearing is, a, is the final in a series of six events we are holding to prepare members of the committee to evaluate a possible nuclear agreement with Iran. This month, we have heard from Secretary Moniz, nuclear lab directors on technical aspects of Iran's nuclear program, from retired diplomats on the regional implications concluding an agreement with Iran, we held closed briefings on sanctions relief and the ability to verify uh, an agreement. Yesterday, we held a hearing to examine lessons learned from past WND negotiations. Today, our witnesses can cover a range of topics from technical aspects of the Iranian program to the interior politics of Iran. One common theme from these events is that senators have left, I believe this to be true, with more questions and concerns about the agreement than answers. In the last few days prior to an agreement being in these last few days prior to an agreement being reached, I think it is important for senators to voice the concerns they have in hopes that those concerns will improve the deal. I think it is clear that the negotiators pay attention to what we say, so it is important that we say that now. I wish to call the committee's attention to the importance of PMD disclosure, requiring the Iranians to address all of the IAEA's PMD concerns prior to relieving sanctions is not just an issue about Iranian national pride, it's essential to properly verifying an agreement. I would appreciate it if the witness would comment on why PMD disclosure is important and more specifically why it is necessary to properly verify an agreement. The second issue I would like to highlight is the need for anytime, anywhere inspections. This issue goes hand in hand with PMD disclosures. We don't know what Iran is capable of and we don't have complete access to any and all suspect sites. I don't see how we can reasonably claim to know what Iran is doing. I would also appreciate your comments on the importance of inspector access and what level of access we should require in an agreement. I fear the administration may again provide the green light for a slow and measured nuclear development program that does little to deter Iran from laying the foundation for a weapons program after it reaps the benefits of sanctions relief. As I have stated many times before, I want to see, and I think all of us here want to see, a strong agreement with Iran that will prevent them from obtaining a nuclear weapon and hold them accountable. As we have met with nuclear scientists, regional experts, and former administration personnel, I have become more and more concerned with the direction of these negotiations and potential red lines that may be crossed. It is our responsibility to examine this issue and any final deal that may be reached with a skeptic's eye so that we can determine whether it will be in the best interest of our country and the world. Thank you again for appearing before the committee. Uh, I look forward to your testimony. And with that, I'll turn to Senator, our ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you very much. Uh, this hearing concludes a, a month of committee engagement on the nuclear talks and various elements of a possible deal. 
as well as Iran's role in the region and necessary considerations on U.S. foreign policy. And um, I uh, thank you very much for the manner in which I think our committee is prepared uh, for the outcomes of the negotiations between the P5 plus one and Iran. Uh, we certainly, by the time we reconvene uh, after this recess, we should know the status of, of those talks. President Obama and his administration deserves praise for boldly pursuing the diplomatic path. One of the consensus that I think we have determined is that all of us agree that the right diplomatic path, the right agreement, would be the best course for us to pursue to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons state. The other area that I think has been broadly agreed to, not only by the Congress and the American people, but by all of the uh, surrounding states in the region, uh, that this world will be much safer and we must prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon power, that that, that would be a game changer in the region. I, I want to underscore uh, a couple imp important points, and that is that I will not reach a decision as to whether we should support or not support a potential agreement until I've seen that agreement and have seen the exhibits and have had a chance to, uh, in both an open and a closed setting, to understand all of the information so that we know exactly what the agreement is and what the commitments will be and what the consequences if those terms are not agreed to. I will evaluate the agreement on whether it achieves its objectives. Will this deal sufficiently extend the breakout time it would take for Iran to produce a nuclear weapon? Does the deal cut off all Iranian pathways, including a convert, uh, a convert one to a nuclear weapons? We know that they will try to do things in the convert setting. Will the inspection and verification regime be sufficiently robust to ensure that all possible uh, pathways are cut off? Will this agreement require that Iran respond to all the allegations that the IAEA has made about the possible military dimensions of a nuclear program? Does the agreement provide a path for the international community to respond to Iran's violations of an agreement? In other words, will we have adequate time in order to take the appropriate steps if Iran does not comply with a potential agreement to make sure that they do not become a nuclear weapons state? We have an important role to play, but we are not in the negotiating room, and we should not prejudge the outcome of the talks. What is clear to me is that we need an agreement with Iran that requires the resolution of possibility, possible military dimensions, demands ver verifiable, transparent, intrusive inspections, and ensures that the sanctions will snap back forcefully should Iran breach its obligations. I look forward uh, to the witnesses' testimony and just as importantly, our ability to, to interact in, in questioning uh, in order to, to further our capacity to appropriately review any potential agreement. Thank you, Senator Cardin. We'll Cardin will now turn to our witnesses. Our first witness is Mr. David Albright, uh, certainly no stranger to this committee, President of the Institute for Science and International Security. We thank you for being here. Our second witness today is Dr. Ray Takei. Senior Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, also uh, no stranger to this committee. We appreciate him being here. And our third witness is Dr. Jim Walsh, Research Associate for Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts uh, Institute for Technology. We want to thank you all for being here. Uh, this is our sixth 
briefing and or hearing. Uh, we hope for, that y'all are going to cap this off in a very appropriate way. We look forward to your testimony, if you would. I think you all know this. Uh, summarize your comments, if you will, in about five minutes without objection. Your written testimony will be entered into the record. Uh, and we look forward to, uh, to our questions. Again, thank you very much for waiting through a business meeting, for being here today, and concluding our sessions on this prior to a potential agreement. Thank you very much. And I'll start with you, David. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and other, and other uh, senators. And particularly, thank you for inviting me to testify today. It is, it's a very technical agreement. It's very difficult to understand, and, and I, I think it does require considerable amount of attention. It also is a very momentous agreement if it, if it comes to pass. And I think as senators think about how to evaluate a nuclear deal, I would recommend that one model to follow is the procedures used when the president submits a treaty to the Senate for ratification. Now, now clearly, this is not a treaty and an executive agreement. Um, but because of the significant impact on US national security, this agreement warrants special, special and extraordinary congressional scrutiny. And the scrutiny should not only lead to an up or down vote, um, but it should also result in legislation that enshrines and elaborates on its provisions uh, and its implementation over time, makes key interpretations of its provisions, and it, and it establishes robust re administration reporting requirements. More specifically in evaluating the deal, uh, senators should use a set of criteria. And in my testimony, I've listed um, about, a, well, 11. Um, I would not cover those now. I'm sure other witnesses would add to that. Um, but I would like to emphasize several. Um, one is, is, I think it's clear that, that a breakout time has been a very important criteria in driving the negotiations. And I think it's turned out to be extremely useful in establishing limitations on the Iranian program and have been used very effectively in the negotiations to, in a sense, corner the Iranians and get them to agree to the kinds of reductions in their centrifuge program that have been necessary. The administration has chosen to have a 12-month breakout time, and I think that on the basic deal of numbers of centrifuges that would remain, the amount of 3.5% um, low-enriched uranium, that it's, at my institute, we agree with their assessment that a 12-month breakout time has been satisfied. There are concerns, though, however, that there's other low-enriched uranium that's will probably stay in Iran on the current negotiating trajectory, namely the near 20%. And we think that if that material stays, that that can lower the breakout times below 12 months, and that that 20% uh, material needs to leave Iran. And I hope the administration would work to do that in the time remaining. There's also concerns that, that Iran not be able to reconstitute uh, its dismantled centrifuges. Uh, there'll be over over 10,000 declared excess. And, and under the Lausanne agreement, interim agreement, they would be dismantled and stored. There are questions how quickly could they be brought back into play. And I, and I have no idea what the rules are, but I think that's another area that needs scrutiny. Now, it's been brought up about the inspectors needing access, and I, I can't emphasize that enough. And, and under the additional protocol, access to military sites uh, would be would be guaranteed, and Iran's 
intransigence on this point is very disturbing because it understands how the IE does its business. It does not distinguish between civilian and military sites. It needs to go to the sites it needs to go to. And so I think if this issue is not resolved in a favorable light, that I, I don't see how, how there can be a deal. That without access to, to sites that are suspicious, anywhere and promptly, I mean, we use the term any time, it's a term, in practice it means promptly. Um, again, I don't see how you can verify this agreement. And, and Iran's recent statements um, about this have to worry everybody. As do Iran's recent comments and on ongoing comments on the possible military dimensions of the PMD. Um, the IA needs to know what Iran knows. How much progress did it make on nuclear weapons? Um, has it put that, that capability on the shelf to pull out? The, the IA learned in a, in a very hard way that if they don't pay attention to the past, they can't know what's going on now. And particularly, they cannot determine that the program is peaceful. And they learned this the very hard way in Iraq in the early 90s. They couldn't verify South Africa's uh, denuclearization. And, and South Africa was put under tremendous pressure to reveal its past work on nuclear weapons, which it eventually did, and the IA was able to wrap up its investigation and declare that South Africa had given up all its nuclear weapons and wasn't hiding anything. And so I think that without knowing the past, the IA cannot verify that Iran's program is peaceful. And again, the fact that Iran is becoming more and more intransigent on this point it has to make one pessimistic about this deal. Another, another issue and this will be the last one I cover, I see my time is up, um, is it's a very hard one to deal with, and I think Congress has a special role to play on this, is that this deal was set up, in essence, to limit Iran's program for a certain period of time. And I think I was disappointed that 10 years was, was really the baseline, not, not 15 to 20, as when you would have a very harsh limitation on the centrifuge program. But that being said, I think it... Congress needs to wrestle with this because if you have limitations, harsh limitations for 10 years, and they're good ones, the, unfortunately the way this deal works is t years 10 to 13, Iran is preparing for development and deployment, and after year 13, it's full-scale deployment. And by year 15, they could be having a capability that has breakout times far less than what we have now, and they could have some of that capability in the deeply buried, buried Fort Al site. And so in a sense, we would be worse off then than we are now. And I think the, this deal has to include in it some assurance to the United States that if Iran is going to build up its nuclear program in the future, that it's guaranteed to be economically justified and consistent with a civil nuclear need. And I think in, in the legislation that I mentioned, I think there needs to be a, um, some conditions put in of how the U.S. interprets this situation that it, I would argue it's unacceptable unless those kind of conditions are met. And in that sense, if Iran does build up, as people fear, that that would be seen as a violation of the intention of this deal and would allow the United States to act at that time. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ray. Uh, thank you, Chairman Corker, for inviting me back to the committee. And I come to you not just as a witness, but as a constituent of Senator Cardin, a longtime constituent. <laughs> Uh, I would say that since the beginning of serious negotiations in 2013, Iran's basic red lines have remained 
uh, fairly consistent. Upon inauguration of President Hassan Rouhani, Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei laid down his parameters for an acceptable deal. And those parameters were that Iran has a right to enrich, that enrichment right has to be acknowledged and at some point industrialized. That uh, research and development would continue in advanced technologies and no facility would shutter. In recent weeks, Ali Khamenei has added to his conditions by claiming that inspectors would have no right to have access to military facilities and scientists, and he has disputed the already short duration of the agreement of 10 years. The American position has undergone an impressive set of transitions. In December 2013, President Obama insisted, and I quote, in terms of specifics, we know they don't need to have an underground fortified facility like Fort O in order to have a peaceful nuclear program. They certainly don't need to have a heavy water reactor in Iraq in order to have a peaceful nuclear program. They don't need to have some advanced centrifuges that they currently possess in order to have a limited peaceful nuclear program. A careful reading of the Joint Plan of Action and the Lausanne framework reveals that none of these expectations have come to fruition. The underground Fort O facility will remain open and house 1,000 centrifuges. The Iraq heavy water plan is to remain open but will presumably undergo modifications whereby it produces less fuel. A vast portion of Iran's enrichment infrastructure will not be dismantled. Iran's expanding fleet of ballistic missiles for which there is no function other than delivering a nuclear payload will remain unaddressed. The issue of Iran's military experimentation with nuclear technology is unlikely to be resolved. The sanctions architecture will be attenuated and snapping back is problematic. Thus far in the negotiating process, Iran has carefully advanced its objectives, sustained its mandates. Conversely, the United States has made a series of concessions that make the possibility of a good deal difficult at this point to envision. The question is, what constitutes a good deal? And I'll outline some brief parameters. Number one, I think we should restore the original principles of negotiations prior to 2014. The notion of national needs should replace the one-year breakout period. Prior to 2014, the basic US position and the five plus one position was that Iran's national needs should constitute the scope of its atomic infrastructure. In simplest term, uranium is rich to make fuel rods that then power reactors. Given the fact that Iran has no capacity to make, reliable capacity to make fuel rods or construct reactors, it was decided that they should have a modest enrichment program of few hundred centrifuges. Such a program would offer Iran a face-saving measure of suggesting it is enriched uranium, but it would not necessarily be misused for military purposes. This sensible precaution was abandoned and replaced by the notion of one-year breakout, which is not static. President Obama has said in his NPR interview that by year 13, the breakout period will be zero. Zero breakout period is undetected weapon capability. Um, instead of a sunset clause, we should go back again to the pre-2014 position, namely that Iran cannot become a member of the NPT community in good standing unless it satisfies the international community that its program is strictly for peaceful purposes. This means certification by the IAEA and a vote at the Security Council resolution whereby the United States has a veto power. Thus, we would determine when Iran advances and expands its program and not some arbitrary time clock. Possible military dimensions has already been discussed. It should be resolved as a prelude to a final agreement. This issue deals with important topics such as undeclared procurement activities and work on triggering device. These issues are indispensable for understanding the full scope of Iran's military experimentation with its nuclear program uh, technologies and whether it has uh, ceased. Anywhere, anytime inspection must be implemented. The Islamic Republic tends to view international law as a conspiracy and all evidence marshaled against it by the IEA as manufactured and fraudulent. It is a regime's disdain for global norms and views itself as unbound by legal strictures. The only plausible means of ensuring compliance with such a regime is to grant inspectors unfettered access to all sites and scientists. 
Any agreement that falls short of that inspection modality will not be able to deal with a country with such a sordid history of concealment and deception. Iran's ballistic missiles, which are an important aspect of the nuclear weapons program, have to be part of an agreement. It was the Obama administration itself that insisted on inclusion of ballistic missiles in UN Security Council Resolution 1929 that passed in June of 2010. It is a red line that the administration has itself drawn and it should not be allowed to abandon yet another one of its own prohibitions. Finally, I will say the success of any agreement hinges on whether it can permanently and reliably arrest momentum toward proliferation of dangerous technologies. At this point, there is no indication that the contemplated deal would achieve these objectives. Thank you. Thank you. Jim. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, members of the committee, it's an honor to be with you here today and to be sitting next to these accomplished gentlemen and friends to discuss a possible Iran agreement. Absent congressional leadership, we would not be where we are today in a negotiation, and absent congressional leadership in the future, we will not be where we need to be. Let me begin with the obvious. We don't have a final agreement, so I can't really judge that. And as the uh, negotiators often say, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. But I'm prepared to keep an open mind. And now, there's been all sorts of speculation about uh, potential problems, but I think we should wait till we actually have the agreement to judge that. And I think it's worth remembering that at every junction so far, American negotiators have beat expectations. The joint plan of action, I think, was stronger than people anticipated. It got our number one nonproliferation uh, concern at the time, which was 20% enriched uranium, plus expanded verification that many of us did not expect. Uh, the framework announced in April, people thought, well, that was going to be a vague piece of paper, one paragraph, two paragraphs, turned out to be much more detailed, have many more provisions than people expected, and even critics and skeptics of the process had to admit that that was a pretty impressive result. My summary judgment is inspections, PMDs, and breakout are all issues that policymakers will want to consider carefully. I judge that the risks posed by these challenges are real, but manageable, and not in excess of what similar agreements have been successfully able to navigate. I also judge that an agreement is likely to bolster uh, nonproliferation, the cause of nonproliferation, both in the region and globally. I will briefly touch on a few of these points. Let me begin with criteria for evaluating a future agreement. And first, a bit of context. As contemporary scholars of nuclear studies have report, uh, repeatedly pointed out, the historical record of nonproliferation is a surprising story of success. Dark predictions of nuclear spread did not come true. We do not live in a world of dozens of nuclear weapons, as had been predicted. In fact, the rate of, and pace of proliferation has steadily declined since the 1960s, with fewer and fewer countries joining the nuclear weapons club in each ensuing decade. Of course, not all the news is good, North Korea, AQ Khan, but the unambiguous evidence to date suggests that it is possible to prevent and reverse proliferation. The data also suggests that negotiated agreements are a powerful tool for achieving non-proliferation objectives. In my written testimony, I outlined several criteria policymakers might use to evaluate an agreement. Let me touch on a few. Is an agreement sustainable? Using broad, simple measures, how does an agreement compare with the status quo? For example, under the JPOA, Secretary Amano indicated that inspections in Iran would double. How does the agreement compare with other successful and unsuccessful nuclear agreements? How does an agreement compare to other alternatives for dealing with Iran's nuclear program? And finally, assessment should avoid making the perfect the enemy of the good. In public policy, there are always risks, risks from action, risks from inaction. If perfect were the standard, we would have no NPT, we'd have no arms control agreements with the Soviet Union, we'd have no nuclear deal with Libya. 
all of which have advanced American national security. As we have seen, good enough can produce great results. Now, as to the challenges of verification, I think it makes sense to step back and put it in some historical context. Verification has grown progressively stronger over time. This is true legally and institutionally, and also with respect to the sciences and technologies available for verification. And I think the current conditions are favorable for a verification regime. I could go on to, uh, into that in some detail, but remember, Iran is the most watched country in the world, a fact unlikely to change anytime soon. Many, including Iranian opposition groups, will be looking for, under every haystack, for the first signs of noncompliance. On possible military dimensions, let me be clear. No comprehensive agreement with Iran uh, is possible without Iran resolving these concerns. But let me go on to say that perfect knowledge is both unlikely and unnecessary. I have personally studied the nuclear weapons efforts of more than a dozen countries, and no one ever knows everything, especially about a program that is years old. The objective should be sufficient information about Iran's past activities such that an agreement can be effectively verified. The P5 plus 1 does not need to know everything before it can do anything. And the truth is we know a great deal about Iran's program as regards proliferation impacts. An agreement that prevents Iran from acquiring the weapons will represent a significant win for the non-proliferation regime. A successful agreement sends the message that violating the NPT carries significant costs, but if a country abandons its nuclear ambitions, it can avoid those costs. It also appears an agreement will break new ground with respect to safeguards and verification. Now, some analysts have expressed concern that a residual enrichment capability will cause proliferation. I do not think that is true. First, in 70 years of nuclear history, there's not a single case of proliferation caused by a safeguarded enrichment program. If limited enrichment infrastructure was viewed as a grave proliferation tripping a threat, then why have countries in the region done nothing for 10 years? Iran has had centrifuges since 2003. And frankly, the set of countries discussed, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Egypt, and particularly Egypt, which I've spent years, decades studying, appear far from a weapons option. In conclusion, I cannot render a final judgment until seeing the provisions of an agreement. But if an agreement is concluded along the lines of the framework described in April, this may well constitute one of the strongest multilateral nonproliferation agreements ever negotiated. It's a great honor to be before this august body, and if I can be of service in the future, I stand ready to do so. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Thank you all three for your testimony, and uh, we've had six uh, briefings, and, and many of those I've deferred in asking questions until uh, other members have had the opportunity to do so, and I'm just going to ask one and then move on so uh, everyone else has a, an opportunity to weigh in. But, could, could you succinctly, each of you, especially because Secretary Kerry um, has mentioned that we don't want to upset Iran's national pride by causing them to have to deal with PMD because we already know everything, which we all know we don't. But could you all express succinctly to each of the members here why the PMD issue on the front end is so important to all of us uh, who want to make sure we have a strong agreement. I think it, <clears throat> one of the most important parts of, of dealing with this, at least in a concrete manner, I mean, you can't do everything that the IA wants to do prior to um, lifting of sanctions. The PMD investigation could go on for years. Um, but you need to do enough so that the IA maintains its credibility. I mean, there's a real risk 
that if this isn't settled satisfactorily, that the main verification entity will have suffered a serious blow to its credibility, and that will call into question the verifiability. And, and, and this, what I'm saying now is I hear from the negotiators. I've heard it from three different teams or negotiators from three different countries that this is taken very seriously. But I will say Secretary of State Kerry's statement last week uh, muddied this issue. And I think it's, and the administration I know has tried to go around and saying their position hasn't changed on PMD. They want concrete progress. But listening to what he said, it has raised questions of whether the United States is going to stick to its commitment to have, to ensure concrete progress and make sure that, that Iran demonstrates cooperation with the IA and the IA can report that there's progress been made before the lifting of key economic or financial sanctions. Thank you, Ray. Uh, I think I largely agree with David. Uh, the first IAEA EU work plan regarding the previous military activity was negotiated in 2006 with then Ali Larajani and has remained unfulfilled since. There are 12 areas which IAEA would like to have answers on and none of those have been completed in the intervening decade. Uh, so this is the issue that has been long deliberated and long found unsatisfactory. Also, there are some issues such as weaponization design, which is basically four guys in a room. I don't think we can determine that activity has stopped without having access to designs and other such information. So some of these weaponization activities may in fact be ongoing because they're extremely difficult to detect and impossible to justify moving forward without actually having an access to some of those depositories and scientists and so forth that is indispensable. Second of all, Iran is in violation of a safeguard agreement today. It is not letting the inspectors into Parchin. It has done much to cleanse it to the dissatisfaction of Gen Director General Amano. So as it's negotiating a future verification plan, it is in violation of his current verification plan. Jim, you want to add to that? Uh, first, Mr. Chairman, I am obliged to say that I will be visiting the volunteer state next week with my new bride, and we will be going to the great uh, town of Mascot, uh, right outside of uh, uh, Knoxville, and uh, they're all watching, I think, online as we, uh, we carry on. Well, so we, please don't embarrass me, is we, I guess my fundamental question here. I just, uh, I just got uh, married. Just like when you bring children here with you, your children, we try not to embarrass I you. I'll try that. not to embarrass I'll you. I'll keep that in mind. Okay. Uh, let me say that I agree with uh, David um, that there has to be some standard here. You're not going to find everything. Even the Iranians probably can't find out everything that happened 15 years ago. That's the nature of these things. But you have to find that which is relevant to going forward. And, and, and let me be clear about my view. Unless IAEA is satisfied, uh, I won't be satisfied. Uh, I have confidence in the agency. They have a lot of experience with this problem. As I say in my testimony, having done it with several different countries, uh, weapons shenanigans, uh, and I would uh, respectfully disagree with my friend Ray. There has been progress here. The progress has been slow, but it started uh, in 2013, sort of coinciding uh, with the Joint Plan of Action. There's still a long way to go, but I think the focus has to be, what is it that we need to know about the program that is relevant to the future, not everything? And, and I think IAEA is more than capable of being able to assess that. I'm going to reserve the rest of my time for interjections uh, to our ranking member. Well, let me thank all three of our witnesses. And I certainly, as I indicated in my opening statement, plan to keep an open mind till we get the agreement and all the um, attachments to that agreement. And, and there's good reason for that, for not just so we see what's there, but there's been conflicting 
accounts of the interpretation of the framework by Iran and the P5 plus one. There's been different uh, negotiating positions. For example, we've been told over and over again there won't be sanction relief until there is compliance with the agreement. Iran has said their position is immediate uh, sanction relief. We'll find out if there's an agreement with what it is. You know, rather than speculate, let's see what the agreement says. Uh, there's been a difference on the military dimension, the BMD. Uh, the, uh, the, we have been assured that we understand the covert risk factors and that will be cut off. Therefore, the military access is going to be absolutely critical. That's what the P5 plus one have been telling, saying. Iran says no to that. Once again, the agreement will tell us uh, what, in fact, it does. So I don't think we can reach a judgment yet until we see the agreement. But as I said at yesterday's hearing, we want to drill down on the vulnerable parts of, or the most challenging parts of the framework so that we're prepared to be able to evaluate that. So, so my question to you is a similar question I asked the panel yesterday. We know the framework. You saw it. It's been out there. It's written. You've seen some of the interpretations given. What gives you the greatest concern in the framework as to the United States being able to achieve its objective of preventing Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state if, in fact, an agreement is entered into under that framework? What is your greatest concerns? The, um, I'd like you to limit to one, if you could, because I... Well, it's hard. Well, maybe I can say them. We, we all have to set priorities in life. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think the, making sure the breakout is consistently obtained, I think, is very important. There's a lot of moving pieces, and it's been a very hard negotiation, and, and I think some things have slipped. I think the um, verification um, is, has, I think the administration is highly committed to intrusive verification, um, but I think the achieving that is very difficult, and I don't think the Lausanne deal dealt with it at all. It just wasn't resolved in any meaningful way. When they talk about watching the uranium uh, supply chain, from a verification point of view, that's interesting and important, but hardly critical. And, and, and so many of the, the basic verification issues were not resolved. Thank you. I would say that one of the unusual aspects of this agreement is that it has sunset clause of 10 years where all the restrictions evaporate. At that time, Iran can begin embark on having an industrial-sized nuclear program similar to that of Japan's. And when it gets to that level of industrialization, then I think there is no inspection modality that can ensure that its nuclear resources will not be misused for military purposes. As far as I know, this is the only agreement that is sunsetted, only final agreement. I mean, SALT-1 had a 15-year sunset clause, but the idea was that it would be replaced by SALT-2. This is the only agreement that I can think of that actually stabilizes the file and then envisions a vast increase in the capacity of the country at some later point. There is not a single Iranian official from whatever political tendency that suggests they will not embark on industrial-sized nuclear program upon expiration of the Sunset Clause, and they even dispute the duration of the Sunset Clause. Thank you. Uh, I would say... Hey. So sorry. Uh, quickly, resources for enforcement and sustainability. I don't disagree with my colleagues. I disagree with, with some of the things, but in large measure, I don't disagree. But I would point to s these other things. Will IAEA has had to increase, had to double the number of inspectors 
in Iran had to it had its budget, extraterritory budget, increased by a third just to deal with Iran. If the, J, if the comprehensive agreement comes to pass, it's probably going to double that again. Who's going to pay for it? It's great to announce things, but someone has to come up with the dollars to make this a real deal. And then sustainability, and that's for both sides. If, if either side feels like this deal is not working for them, uh, as a sovereign state, they're going to pull out. And so the U.S. has to get satisfaction and Iran has to get prompt sanctions relief. Certainly not all sanctions relief, but it has to give something that gives sustenance and sustainability to this process or it'll fall apart. Thank you. Uh, I want to tell you, Mr. Chairman, my own views have changed on this over this past month. I think I probably started this month solely focused in the framework on inspections and verification as being the most challenging part. Maybe it's because a Marylander responded to me, but I'm starting to believe the time issues could be the most challenging moving forward because technology is going to change over the next 10 to 15 years. And yes, Iran does have certain obligations of nonproliferation that have no time limits at all on it, and the inspection issues we ex would, would have no limits as to uh, the inspection regimes. But I do think there's a challenge, and I know that our chairman's been asking for further clarification on Iran's civil nuclear uh, game plan, which is a document that we must have uh, in reviewing this. But I'm starting, I'm, I, I, the, the inspection and verification regime is challenging under the framework. There's no question about it. Technology can help us deal with some of that. There's no question. Intelligence can help us deal with some of this. Uh, but I think as we look at permanently preventing Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons state, we need to have an understanding as to how the different time period transitions take place to the other protections that are in place against Iran becoming a nuclear weapons state and whether that's going to be adequate enough to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons state. That's some of the issues that I'm going to be looking at assuming we get an agreement. Uh, but I think these hearings have been extremely helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for convening all of these, these hearings. It's been very helpful. Um, and I, I, too, have uh, an open mind on this. I've supported the negotiations. Uh, I think they were important to go through. I've uh, uh, believed that uh, the only reason Iran is at the table is that the sanctions have bitten pretty hard. And those sanctions have bitten hard because they are multilateral. And our coalition partners have been with us, uh, certainly the P5 plus 1. Um, group is important to keep together. Um, but I, in the context of uh, whether or not we judge this as a good deal in the end, it's not just is this a good deal overall, it's what is the alternative? And I, I'd love to have some, uh, some discussion there. If we turn this deal down, if our uh, partners stay with us and we maintain the current sanctions regime or even toughen it, uh, would that prohibit uh, Iran from uh, moving ahead if they're really determined to do so? It seems over the past 10 years they've moved from a uh, situation where 2003, very little capability to now a uh, two-month breakout period. Mr. Albright, do you want to discuss that a bit? Uh, if this doesn't go through, even if we maintain the current sanctions, uh, what's the likelihood of Iran pushing through? I, th I think it certainly want a deal. I mean, that's the, I think that's the best outcome. Um, I agree with Jim that negotiated deals can really make a difference. 
I'm sorry, As, they or we? Uh, I'm sorry? Everybody. Uh, you say that we want a deal, they want a deal, or? Well, the, I, I'm just speaking, let me just say I. I think okay. a, a deal is good. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I head an organization, so I shouldn't right. use, I use we too frequently, so I forgive me for that. Um, I, I believe that um, it's not as dire as some have predicted if there's no deal. I mean, I think the U.S. has to consider walking away if its red lines are, are, are uh, or its basic goals are not met. Um, I think what would happen is more pressure would be brought to bear on Iran. I think Iran would respond by, by increasing its program. And I think the United States would have to try to work to try to limit escalation. But I don't see it, I don't see that war is inevitable. I don't see this as a stark choice between a deal or war. I think that's a kind of a Washingtonian game that's played in order to try to intimidate people. Um, I think some of the members of your committees have been called warmongers. I think that's part of that same game. I think realistically what would happen is, is that U.S. would move to increase pressure with its allies and, and China and, and Russia would have to be kind of brought along. It'll be tough, but I think the idea would be to increase pressure and see if you could get back to, a, back to negotiations on a, on, a, on a better, better basis. Mr. Takei? Yeah, uh, as, as everyone has noticed, Ali Khamenei gave a speech, uh, I believe it was two days ago, and some aspects of the speech have been highlighted, some haven't. Uh, in his speech, he says something very interesting that I think everyone should listen to. Uh, he says, and I quote, um, a rough translation, uh, I, have made, I may have said this before, which is not true actually, that in the movement of nuclear enrichment, the important and hard part is moving from 3% to 4% to 20%. It is very easy to move from 20% to 90%. When a person reaches 20%, the next stages are very easy. 90% is weapon-grade uranium. It is the first time that I have heard him, and I have read every one of his speeches, I'm not trying to show off because they're in English. They translate them. Uh, this is the first time he has looked at his enrichment program within the context of weaponization, mm -hmm. weapon-grade uranium. Now, something to improve the agreement as it goes forward because, as has been mentioned here, we don't have an agreement. On the sunset clause, one of the things that we should do potentially is go back and suggest that after 10 years, the 5 plus 1 and Iran get to vote on whether to extend those restrictions for another 10 years. There is a precedent for that. It's called the NPT. After 25 years, all the members of the NPT voted to extend its restrictions. So there should be some measure and mechanism for extension of the timeline. Uh, if you look at this agreement, the restrictions that it has on the plutonium are actually quite sound because they're permanent in nature. It tends to be more permanent and intrusive on the plutonium route than it is on enrichment. And enrichment always has been the most important Iranian path forward. Finally, I agree with what David and Jim have said. There's no tolerable outcome to this than a negotiated settlement, which is why we should be very careful about the type of settlement we negotiate. Mr. Walsh? I think a lot of different things could happen. I wonder if I set a record for the number of times not pushed. Um, uh, I think a lot of different things could happen, and the question is which are more likely. Now, some of the evidence for what to expect we have in history. In 2005, those negotiations broke down, and Iran went from 164 centrifuges to 19,000 centrifuges, and it went from 3% enrichment to 20% enrichment. So a lot of it depends on how the thing breaks down. Uh, if it breaks down and Iran is blamed, that's sort of one scenario. If it breaks down because people perceive the U.S. has been the obstacle, that's another scenario. But I'm guessing that if the thing breaks down, Congress is going to move to impose sanctions. 
And if Congress, which is totally understandable, and I you know, would accept, uh, would support that, but the enemy gets a vote. And so when it breaks down and you impose sanctions, they're going to respond, which has been the game back and forth, each side shoveling and digging deeper. And I, I certainly hope that we avoid that. I don't think war is inevitable, but I think the use of military force, the probability of that does increase, right? I mean, we have people who are calling for bombing today in the middle of a negotiation. Certainly those voices will grow louder if Iran pulls out and this we go back to trying to beat each other with sticks. So I don't think it's a guarantee, but I, I, I think we should be aware that it is among the possibilities. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to both of you for doing these hearings. I think that they've been very, very valuable. Obviously, when we uh, embraced in the committee and in Congress the, the Corker, Menendez, Cardin sort of review process, the important thing is to not prejudge. We, we actually have a path where we can procedurally dig in and then judge a deal. Um, so we, we, we needn't prejudge based upon hearing, you know, one statement or the reporting of one particular item. But because the timeline will be on, will be an aggressive one, these hearings have helped us get our, you know, our own mental centrifuges turning <laughs> so that we'll be ready to address the issues, you know, in the, with the depth that they need. And I appreciate the, uh, the fact that we've had these hearings. I've been asking witnesses uh, this question during the hearings, and I'd be curious as to your views. Has the period under the JPOA since no November 2013 been better than this status quo ante? I, I think it's been it's been better. Yeah, no, no, it it froze many things. It didn't freeze everything. I mean, there's uh, some there's been growth in the program. The stock of oil-enriched uranium, three and a half percent, has gone up. Um, centrifuge R&D has advanced. Um, there's been some problems with you know, questions of compliance by Iran, but overall, I think it's it's been a positive development and 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 provided time to negotiate a, a, a long-term deal. Uh, I'll just say one thing: the JPOA has two particular components. Number one, the restrictions that David talked about and the salutary nature of those restrictions. But those restrictions were purchased by two concessions that the United States made. Number one, acknowledging Iran's right to enrich and accepting that that enrichment capacity will at some point be industrialized. Since the advent of atomic weapons, it has been the United States policy across 70 years that we are against proliferation of sensitive nuclear technologies. Sensitive nuclear technologies are identified as reprocessing plutonium and enriching uranium. As a, as a pathway to restricting proliferation of such technologies in the 1960s after China detonated, we established a multilateral framework called the NPT. Uh, after India detonated in 1974, we established the nuclear supplier group and attempt to restrict other countries having indigenous fuel cycle. When the Shah of Iran tried to have an indigenous fuel cycle by enriching uranium, Ford, Carter, and Nixon administration before that prohibited him from doing so. That's why he went to the French. Uh, so it's been a steady American policy that we're against. Yeah, no, I, I, I understood all that before you answered the question. I yeah. want to make sure I understand your answer. I think your answer is that between November of 2013 and now, existing under the JPOA has, has had some positive effects. But you, you, but you are predicting that down the road there could be an industrialization of this program at some point in the future because of a concession that was made as part of the JPOA. I'm not predicting it. Every Iranian official is saying it. But, but, but we haven't seen it to today. You're saying that this is something that you think will happen at some indeterminate time in the future. My question was, is from November 2013 to today, 
um, have what we've seen under the JPOA been better than the status quo? And I think I think your answer is to today, yes, but down the road there may be some bad. Well, things I think it's, uh, my answer is on the specific operation of the entire program. There has been some restrictions mm -hmm. and restraints built in, mm -hmm. which have been useful. In terms of the purchase price of those restrictions, namely acknowledgement of enrichment capacity and acknowledgement of industrialization of those could lead capacity. down the road to some significant. Those are changes. titanic concessions in the history of the United States. Hey, Dr. Welsh. Program. Yeah, I don't think this is a hard question. Yeah, I, 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 think I don't it's either. Obvious. I don't think Prime Minister uh, Yahoo thinks it's a hard right. question. Remember, it was the Prime Minister who said this was the worst deal in history and invoked Chamberlain and the sky was going to fall, and now it's Israel that wants to see the JPOA right. extended. I think we got our number one non-proliferation issue, 20%. Did they get their non, uh, number yeah. one uh, sanctions relief issue? No, they did not. All so right, well, let me, yeah, let me just say, I, I met with the prime minister in his office in February 2014, and he said the negotiation was a historic mistake. And when we met with him again in January of 2015, not only the prime minister but others, they grudgingly acknowledged that, well, maybe the JAPOA wasn't such a bad idea. Now, they had huge concerns about future developments of the kind that Dr. Takei mentioned and that I think we have concerns about as well. The, the reason I asked that question to sort of, to set up my next question, I'm following up on some things that Senator Flake asked about. I also do not believe that the options are a deal that we think is a great deal or war. I think that's a false choice. There's just some, you know, Washington rhetoric in that and people are trying to negotiate using that. I, I don't think those are the options. One option is if there's not a deal. I, I do think the risk of military <coughs> action increases. I do think that's the case. But one option is we, both sides go back to their corner. We increase the pressure with sanctions, and then Iran makes their own decision. The, the enemy gets a veto. They can do what they want. But another option that I've heard discussed, and the Israelis put it on the table when I spoke with them in, in January, is continuing to live under the JAPOA for some period of time. If, the, if, if, for example, there are terms that either they won't accept or we won't accept, for example, we can't um, inspect military facilities, we would say, well, no, that's just not an acceptable deal. Is, do, do, is that a realistic option? Um, we might think it's an acceptable one, but I don't know from the Iranian standpoint, is that a realistic option that until we find a deal, we could continue to live under the terms of the JAPOA with the provision of modest uh, release of escrowed funds in exchange for Iran continuing to operate under the uh, uh, restraints that have been generally viewed as salutary, at least in the present. Yeah, I, I think I think it's workable. I mean, it's not desirable. I mean, yeah. the, from the U.S. point of view, what I've always heard is that there's worry about the covert side. Mm -hmm. the, the, the joint plan of action really does nothing on on, on the whole question of undeclared mm -hmm. activities, and mm -hmm. so you have to worry about that. And there's worry, so that would be a weakness. Yeah, and, there, and genuine worry whether U.S. Mm -hmm. intelligence can always catch something. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been they've been pretty good with Iran. But, but they don't know everything by any means. Um, they're also, could I add one mm -hmm. thing on the previous question? Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the important things Congress can do is to, to make, clearly state that Iran does not have a right to enrich. I think the administration agrees with that. Under, I've, I've heard Wendy uh, Sherman testify to that, I think in front of this committee. Um, that there, there is no right to enrich under the NPT, and, that, and we shouldn't give that up. We should also recognize that this new norm that's been established of countries violating agreements, being able to enrich, even when they don't need it. And that's one of the things that the, this deal, and particularly the Lausanne deal, shows. Iran has zero need for enrichment. 
yet it gets to enrich in a region of tension after violating all kinds of agreements. So I think it's a very dangerous norm. And I think that, I know negotiators are aware of that, but I think that there is a need to think through that and what it could mean in terms of others deciding to do the same thing and the U.S. being in a weakened position to, to stop it. Can I, can I may I briefly respond? Mr. Chair, is that with that okay? Sure. Yeah. sure. Uh, I would say it's a theoretical possibility that would be a lot better than some of the other alternatives. I wonder if it's a political possibility. I wonder if Congress would be willing to go along with that. I wonder if Rouhani would be willing to go along with that because each day he grows weaker as, as critics say, look, you gave in, you sold the store, and at some point he may feel compelled to withdraw rather than continue to take that sort of heat because he'll be caught in a no person's land. Mm -hmm. uh, on the right to enrich, I, the JPOA does not say that Iran has a right to enrich. And as far as Iran's future plans, they have said that they plan to expand. I, I don't take a lot of Iranian statements at face value. They've said that they were going to build 12 nuclear power plants 10 years ago. They haven't done it. Uh, lots of countries in the region make grand claims. I think we have to plan for that as a possibility, but I don't think it's a guarantee that that's what's going to happen. I think actually causing them to pause may take some uh, air out of the balloon. Yeah. I'll say one thing. Um, JPOA acknowledges practice of enrichment if it doesn't acknowledge the principle. So yeah. if, you, if that makes you feel better, then that makes you feel better. Uh, and so if, if, if the United States, United States doesn't acknowledge Japan's right to enrich. That's not what we do. Mm -hmm. But in JPOA, we respect it Iran's continued enrichment activities, irrespective of his violation of Security Council resolutions. Number one, whether they industrialize or not, that's what they say they're gonna do. Everybody, if you show me one single Iranian official that says we're not gonna industrialize, I'd like to see who that is. Uh, now, you can say they're all lying, and if that makes you feel better about you, that, you're, you're making a straw man argument. Well, I, I didn't say that. I asked you a simple question. And you, you were answering my question and another one, and that's great, but it just wasn't the question I was asking. And I'm, and I'm not maintaining that they're not going to industrialize. So. Well, that was bought up, Mr. Chair. If I could, I'll, I'll briefly interject. Um, there is this document, and the political agreement that came out on April 2nd referred to it. It's the Iranian Nuclear, Iranian nuclear Development Program. And I think once we read it, uh, my sense is, and we could be wrong, I think it will acknowledge, in fact, what Ray is saying, and that is they are going to industrialize. And it lays out the pathway towards doing that. So I believe that to be correct today. We but, may but, find but I was not challenging that. I was, okay. I was, I was asking I was about something No, but I, but I will say <laughs> yeah. I did feel like it was being was sloughed over to a degree. No. <laughs> I felt like it was to a degree being sloughed over, and, and I, I think it's acknowledged that after year 10, they are geometrically going to be adding centrifuges, and I think that's what led to the president's comment on NPR that in year 13 there would be at zero breakout. Now, Jim, you want to be an optimist? I, I'm, a, I'm a little more, I'm just skeptical. I, I've studied the Middle East a long time, and I've had a lot of countries come out and say they plan to build big nuclear infrastructures and then nothing ever happens. The Iranians have made more no, progress they, they than They have others. built a, a large yes, infrastructure. Yeah, and the Iranians have done more than their compatriots. Yeah. But they've also said they were going to do a lot of things they didn't do in the, in the nuclear era. And so, yes, we should plan, a prudent policymaker should plan for that, at, that that might happen. But I wouldn't say it's a guarantee. 10 years, 15 years is a, a lifetime in, in a nuclear weapons program. A lot of things could happen. 10 to 10 years is not a lifetime in a country of 5,000 years history. And I would say they've gone through a whole lot of pain 
a whole lot of pain if they're not planning to do that. It's not a, a rational process, and so you would think that they are probably going to industrialize, especially, I think, when we read this document, which lays out what their program will be that the P5 plus one will have agreed to. Uh, I think that will give some strong indications. And I'll just say one more thing. I, I'm, I'm not understanding the, the right to enrich piece, stating it versus the practical. <laughs> we are, in essence, I mean, not in essence, we are saying they have the right to enrich. We are, by virtue of the actions of JAPOA, and certainly what this agreement is going to say. I mean, they are going to be enriching uranium, are they not? Yeah, I, yeah I, I'm the one who's argued for it. I mean, I, I think it. I think it, it's. I, I understand the difference, and and but it's it's. I think it's important for the United States not to concede on this because if there is going to be industrial development in Iran, it has no practical need. There's no practical need for them to enrich uranium, and I think we need to strengthen our hand to oppose it and to say up front that any movement in that direction is a violation of the intention of what, what is intended with this deal. And it's, it's not gonna be in the deal, unless you know, I, I would wish it would be in the deal. Yeah. But I think we need to strengthen our hand in order to fight that development, which I don't think will be needed at all, and, and could pose the basis for Iran's getting nuclear weapons. Yeah. Senator Perdue. And, and let me just add one thing. I think it's even worse. I mean, this was a very big disappointment to me in the Wazan agreement. Um, the, the prohibition on making 20% disappears at year 15. And, and I was told by people in the negotiations that Iran said we intend to go above 3.67%. Uh, so we're back to where we were, but with many more centrifuges, more advanced ones. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to head off that future and not to accept it. And I would argue to strengthen our hand to make those arguments. Thank you. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Dr. Walsh, as a freshman senator, um, I can uh, tell you one thing, just relax. Uh, you're an amateur. Um, you will never compete for the world record of forgetting to turn your mic on. So, um, <laughs> Thank you, that makes me feel much. The second thing is, I, I agree with you in the, in the ranking member. Um, and Senator Flake, Senator Kane, and others have said this. Uh, I, I have an open mind to this negotiation. We don't know what we don't know yet. It's, it's not been fully released, it's not finalized, and so forth. But I don't think, and I think Senator Kane's got to say on it, that these hearings have been very helpful for us to get our heads wrapped around, or as the mental centrifuges, as you say. I like that. I haven't seen it, I haven't heard that before. But to think about this in terms of what we feel like are the minimum requirements. And we've been told by experts, and I'm impressed with the testimony today, very impressed. We were told just yesterday that, um, you know, there are two ways that Iran is, is going to potentially develop a nuclear weapons capability. One is through just waiting us out, you know, through a 10-year deal, as we just were discussing. And the second is through a covert exercise. And so we have inspections and verification to enforce the rules of the negotiation, whatever it turns out to be. So we all know we have to have a verification regime. But the second is intelligence, and we heard yesterday that we don't have a high confidence level right now that our intelligence capability is such that it can actually deter that. And we have evidence of that. I mean, Fordo was created in, in an operation for years before we discovered what they were doing there. Um, we also know that today Iran is in violation of the current inspection regime. We just discussed that. And I want to talk about the State Department. But before I do that, just this weekend, on Sunday, Iran's parliament approved the outlines of a bill this is formal now, to ban inspections on military. This is not just a comment by the Atola on military sites and require the lifting of all sanctions under any nuclear deal. 
This passed 199 to 14. I have two questions. I want to know who the 14 people are. <laughs> but the, the, exactly. You know, who are those 14 guys? Uh, I'd like to recruit them to the Republican side, uh, Senator Curry. But uh, um, I, I in think all seriousness. I think the vote was 213. Yeah, exactly. Or 13, thank you. Uh, in, in all seriousness, um, in backing that up, the Ayatollah made a speech just Sunday uh, on uh, Iranian television, state TV, to demand that most sanctions be lifted before uh, Tehran dismantles any of its nuclear infrastructure. Combine that with the evidence that we now have. We have a report, and, and, and the other thing that's coming out of this is that this is not a static situation. It's a dynamic situation. We'll have to be, if we really want to achieve the goal of not allowing Iran to become a nuclear weapons state, not now, not in 10 years, not ever, then this has to be an ongoing thing past 10 years. It has to be a dynamic situation of inspection, verification, intelligence efforts to make sure that they don't do this. So one of the things that we have to rely on as a Senate is reports back to us. I think this agreement right now, the bill, the Corker-Menendez-Cardin uh, 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 bill has in there that uh, the State Department reports back to us, I think, every six months. And yet we have a GAO report here uh, just released in May of 2015, and it's nonproliferation. State Department should minimize reporting delays that may affect sanctions on trade with Iran and North Korea and Syria. So they're not just talking about Iran. And in the reports that they have been providing to us over the last seven or eight, six years anyway, they've averaged 22 to 36 month delays. In an environment where we're all in agreement that 36 days, 36 months, sorry, 22 to 36 months, um, 36 days can be a lifetime. I'm very concerned about our ability to keep up with what we are learning as a government with regard to Iran. Dr. Takei, uh, uh, would you respond to that and, and, and give me your um, observations? I'd like all of you to give me a, a brief response to, to this trust that we're now having. And the State Department is basically saying in, in the GAO report that there are certain things like uh, political concerns and other delays uh, that, that might delay the process in notifying Congress. But I personally find that uh, unacceptable, as does the GAO. Uh, I'd love your response to this uh, idea of an ongoing involvement in this and the dependence that we have on uh, any State Department, whether it be this administration or any, to keep us involved. Uh, I would say in terms of any arms control agreement, there are two aspects of it. There's verification, and people have talked about verification, but there's also enforcement. Verification is a burglar system. It tells you there's a burglar in your house. The question is, what do you do about it? Historically, arms control agreements have been difficult to enforce. I mean, as this committee knows, the Russian Federation has been violation of the INF agreement for how many years? Uh, historically, that's not unusual, by the way. Uh, the international community becomes invested in the agreement. And there are two types of violations that arms controllers talk about, and Jim and David can speak about this more authoritatively. One is simple irregularities and small-scale violations, which they tend to resolve through adjudication. And this arms control agreement will have what every other one has, a verification and compliance committee. The second is material breach. So when do you say, we gotta get out of this? It almost never gets to the material breach because there's so many international actors invested in perpetuation of the agreement. And they agree that the argument at that time will be, if we walk away from this agreement, they're gonna go from 200 centrifuges to 25,000 centrifuges. Uh, it's an unfortunate talking point. The first time I heard it was in 2007 in Javel Zeri's office. He told me that. That's the first time I heard it. Uh, we shouldn't appropriate it because they paid a heavy price for that. Number one, uh, finally, I would say that this agreement can be measurably improved if they address the issue of sunset clause. 
I have never seen anybody defend the Sunset Clause. Senator Walsh, not Senator Kane, my dear friend Senator Walsh, didn't actually defend the Sunset Clause. He said, they're not going to do it afterwards. Uh, if, <laughs> is that a promotion? <laughs> so I would say there are things that you can do to improve the agreement, but actually enforcing an arms control agreement, we have about 50 years of experience with this, it's very difficult to do, remobilization of the international community, reconstituting any kind of sanctions regime, establishing a military deterrent that is, I think that's just, this agreement should it be violated, and Iranian violations always tend to be incremental and never egregious. So a series of cascade of violations could actually lead them to increase their capacity without significant punitive measures. And finally, I'll say this, I know I went too far. If you, listen to, if you look at Islamic Republic's foreign policy for the past 35 years, they have what we sometimes call a human crisis approach. Uh, they push, they push, they push, they push, and they retreat. The idea is that as you push, once you retreat, you still have derived some dividends. So that's how they kind of approach their foreign relations. And if that's how they approach their nuclear arms, uh, a nuclear program, then, then it, it, is, it doesn't augur well for its longevity, much less its viability. I went too long. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's a very important hearing. And uh, I, I want to follow up on a series of things. And so I'm going to ask you to cooperate with me in terms of how much I want to get in here. So let me start off with you, including my dear friend from Virginia's uh, uh, very often refrain that aren't we better off under the JAPOA? And I think there's a follow-on question to that. And I want to ask that in, in a moment. I want to read from something you said, Mr. Albright. I just want to make sure you haven't changed your mind on it. Um, you're referencing the question of, um, of the nuclear fuel that was increased by 20%. And you went on to say, and I quote, based on the IAEA's reporting to member states, the problems in making enriched uranium oxide were apparent by the fall of 2014 but the administration decided not to make a major issue about the lack of oxide production. And you go on to say, and I quote, concluding that Iran has met the joint plan of action condition to convert to oxide newly enriched up to 5% is incorrect. In this case, the potential violation refers to Iran not producing the enriched oxide at the end of the initial six-month period of the joint plan of action and again after its first extension. The choosing of a weaker condition, which must be met, cannot be a good precedent for interpreting more important provisions in a final deal. Moreover, it tends to confirm the view of critics that future violations of a long-term deal will be downplayed for the sake of generating or maintaining support for the deal. And finally, it says the administration relied on a technical remedy that Iran has not demonstrated it could carry out. Is that still your view? So <clears throat> we basically have a violation of the agreement for some of us, it's not insignificant. It seems to get explained away, and it sets a dangerous precedent uh, from my perspective of what we're looking at as we try to build confidence in whatever uh, final agreement that takes place. And when we are relying on technical remedies that Iran has not been able to show can be successfully used in order to meet the verification and the uh, reductions that we want, we're in trouble. Let me ask you something else. Uh, uh, with reference to the uh, possible military dimensions, you said, and I quote, whenever confronted with Iranian intransigence, they fold. 
It's going to be hard for a lot of people to support this deal if they give in on past military dimensions. Addressing the IAEA's concerns about the military dimensions of Iran's nuclear programs is fundamental to any long-term agreement. An agreement that sidesteps the military issues would risk being unverifiable. Moreover, the world would not be so concerned if Iran had never conducted weaponization activities aimed at building a nuclear weapon. Is that still your view? The part on the fold, I mean, that was, I said that right after Kerry, Secretary Kerry had made his comment. Yeah. The administration came to me subsequently and said that they had not changed their position. I know. But it, I, the rest I'm would I'm trying hold. to figure out what the position is. Yeah. You? No, the rest, would, rest of <clears throat> what I said, I, I agree. Now, with. Uh, someone else, uh, the, the, depu the former Deputy De Director General of the IAEA, Oli Honanon, said, without addressing those questions, the possible military dimensions, the IAEA Secretariat would not be able to come to a conclusion that all nuclear material in Iran is in peaceful use, which is essential in building confidence of the international community over Iran's nuclear program. A comprehensive deal can only be reached if uncertainties over Iran's military nuclear capability are credibly addressed. This should be an unambiguous condition to achieving a final accord that is meaningful and safeguard terms. Now, this is the number two, was the number two, at the institution that we are overwhelmingly relying, if we have an agreement, to largely do the verification and the ultimate determination on the question of possible military dimensions. Uh, Dr. Takia, is that something that you would agree with, his assertion? <laughs> Make sure to do that. Uh, as I mentioned in my testimony, Senator Menendez, I think the resolution of the PMB issue is indispensable to the viability and credibility of this agreement. Now, let me ask you something. During, uh, I was taken back when I read uh, interim uh, framework agreement that uh, as it relates to Iran, they would implement the modified code 3.1 to its existing uh, IAEA safeguards agreements, in essence, the additional protocol. However, as with the additional protocol, Iran may only be required to abide by as opposed to ratifying the additional protocol. To me, that's problematic since Iran is the only NPT signatory to have suspended these measures in the past. Should we accept an agreement in which Iran is not required to ratify the modified code or the additional protocol? I, I thought they would be required to ratify. I thought that I, I That's what we thought. But if you read so far it says that they will abide by it. And so should a final agreement not say that they must ratify it? No, I, I would think ratify. I mean that that needs to be checked. I mean How about it's a good, you, Dr. Good, good question. Uh, My understanding is that one of their deputy negotiator, Abbas Adokchi, has said that compliance to additional protocol, I think he was talking about that and code 3.1 is a conjunction of that, would only come about if there is ratification. Uh, now, if there is no ratification, then I guess they go back to their fallback position of adherence pending ratification. Now, I don't have a whip count in the Iranian parliament. I can't tell you if they're going to ratify it or not, but the, the full compliance would have to be with the ratification. And compliance means, for us, should mean ratification as well, should it not? Yes. Okay. yes. Now, let me go to my esteemed colleague's questions. He's asked, he's asked a good question, but uh, about are we better off now with Japoa than where we were? The question for me is, what are we going to be better off with in the long term? Uh, and in that respect, 
I uh, look at a letter that was just released by five former members of President Obama's inner circle of Iran advisors who wrote to him and they said, quote, precisely because Iran will be left as a nuclear threshold state and has clearly preserved the option of becoming a nuclear weapon state, the United States must go on record now that it is committed to using all means necessary, including military force to, pre to prevent this. Is it not uh, essential for us to be able to make it clear that even after the expiration of the agreement with Iran, that we would not permit it to possess enough nuclear fuel to make a single weapon? I think it's very important. I mean, I think the, in the, I still call it the JPA, so forgive me. But the, um, um, there's a clause in there that, it, that it's, the nuclear program should be judged as under a criteria of practical need. And I think it's been lost in this whole negotiation, but I think it's fundamental. Iran doesn't need a centrifuge program, doesn't need it today. It's very unlikely to need it 15 years from now. If it can demonstrate that it needs it, then okay. But if not, then that program should not be accepted, and the U.S. should be clear that it should not be accepted. Mr. Chairman, can I ask one final question? Uh, so this is what I'm concerned about, is where we're headed on all of these elements as to any final agreement, and then we can make the judgment, are we truly better off? Uh, I probably wouldn't dispute with my colleague that in the interim, to the extent that we have stopped forward progress, we're better off, it's bought us time, uh, but by the same token, what is the long term? Because several witnesses have come before the committee and basically said, look, we're not solving the problem. We are delaying the problem at the end of the day. And that's you know, aspirational that uh, the regime is going to change its mind over the next decade and move in a totally different direction. My, my last concern, in January of 2014, the US government's Defense Science Board issued a remarkably frank report uh, entitled Assessment of Nuclear Monitoring and Verification Technologies. And their conclusion was pretty shocking to me. They concluded that the U.S. government tools are either inadequate or more often do not exist for a list of current challenges that read like the challenges that will be posed by an agreement with Iran. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read uh, that report, uh, but is, is it in your professional experience that we have the capacity now uh, to deal with uh, the, all of the elements of what is envisioned in an Iran agreement to make sure? I, I think there's always limitations in intelligence. If you look at many proliferation cases, I mean, you just can't depend on intelligence for timely detection. And that's, in fact, why people in this country, around the world, invest so much in the IAEA. In a sense, they're the boots on the ground, and you want to empower them um, and to get the information that can then detect a violation. And, they, and they've proven that ability over and over again. And I think in this deal, they're critical. Certainly, they, have to, they work synergistically with, with um, member states' intelligence agencies, and the intelligence agencies benefit tremendously from the results of the IA. But I think it, you cannot depend on intelligence to verify this deal. I mean, I think the U.S. intelligence has done a remarkably good job in, in discovering uh, secret programs in Iran. I think the IA 
was able to use that information um, gained in some cases from um, Iranian um, defector groups in order to on the ground press Iran really hard to reveal secret activities and, and in that sense stop them where the intelligence information was incomplete but had no power really to stop the Iranian movement uh, forward on their nuclear program. But the IA confronting them on one lie after another in 2003 was a very powerful tool and so you, you do need them fully empowered, verifying this deal. Well, thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I, I don't know if we're going to have any more briefings along the way, but I would commend to your attention this Defense Science Board. It's about a year old. Maybe a lot's changed in a year, but if you read the report, it leaves you with real concerns about what our abilities are to do a lot of what we are expecting in any framework agreement. Thank you for the courtesy. Thank you, and thanks for your uh, very good questions and certainly uh, years of focus on Ron's nuclear program. Just, uh, we, just to close out, I think there may be a, some additional questions. Uh, we, if you really, we've had some interesting briefings and uh, they've been incredibly well attended, especially the private ones and the discussion's been pretty fascinating. But if you look at where we are, um, we end up with a likely, we'll see, we'll see when this all, right, you've said some things today that probably cannot happen because we've already gone beyond. You've talked about some of the qualities of an agreement that should be, but I think we've sort of moved beyond those. We, in essence, it looks like we're gonna have a 10-year agreement uh, where during that 10 years, uh, Iran can continue to, to do the research and development they wish on, uh, on centrifuges, and I wanna get back to that in just a second. They also have the ability to continue to uh, develop their already well-sophisticated uh, ballistic missile program. And then after that 10-year period, it appears, based on what we know today, it appears that it's likely uh, their, their whole program will hugely progress. And so we're gonna be faced with a qualitative decision about whether a 10-year pause um, is worth uh, giving up probably 20 years worth of sanctions that have been put in place. And um, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's gonna be an interesting decision, I think, for, for most to make. Just, is it your sense that within Iran, uh, the thinking among the people that matter within the country do view this as simply a 10-year pause, and to quote one senator, these were private meetings, that instead of a, a very poor country uh, achieving nuclear weapons capability, uh, we will now allow a very rich country to do that because we will have alleviated uh, all of our sanctions possibly in the next 10 years. So you have a country whose economy is growing, $150 billion in relief will have taken place. They're exporting uh, the extra 40% that's been diminished relative to their uh, oil. Um, is it your sense within the country that they do see this as simply a 10-year pause and that they really are getting everything that they wish and 10 years is not a long period uh, for a country like Iran and they're, they're going to be sitting in a place that virtually assures uh, them being a threshold country? I, I think the... Ray, why don't you go first? Because it's really... It's what is <laughs> yeah. Iran thinking? And, well, and uh, I, I have some comments, but... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy... Uh, it was already on. That's how I beat this program here. Uh, Mr. Chairman, what I would like to do is respectfully offer an alternative view. 
I know this committee is steeped in the details of this agreement, but folks watching on TV or online might not fully understand that the agreement entails restrictions that are indefinite in some cases. Ray referred to the fact that if you redesign the Iraq reactor, you can't go in after it's hot and, reach and change it. Uh, this, uh, uh, shipping out the spent fuel, uh, the uh, additional protocol I believe will be in perpetuity. The NPT obligations continue in perpetuity. The subsidiary code 3.1 continue in perpetuity. Access to mines for 30 years, other things for 20 years. It's true that some of the important restrictions are only uh, 10 or 15 years, and 10 years is not a long time in Iranian history, but it's a long time for a nuclear program, and that's the difference. Often in these programs, the more you stretch them out, the likelier they are to die. And, and I say as a summary thing here, the DNI tells us that Iran has a nuclear weapons capability. You cannot bomb the knowledge of how to build a centrifuge out of their heads. That ho horse has left the barn. That's the situation we deal with. The DNI has also said that they have not yet made a decision to pursue nuclear weapons. It seems if they have the capability and they haven't decided that now's the time to lock them into a road where they become like the other 30 states that started down the path towards nuclear weapons, stopped in reverse course, part of this incredible record of success I referred to, now's the time to do that, to put them on a path rather than the alternative, which is more centrifuges, uh, the hardliners are emboldened. That's a path towards nuclear weapons, in, in my view. Thank you. Yeah, let me, I guess, uh, let me make a comment. I mean, I, I think the 10 years to me is not long enough. I mean, it's, it's it, in a sense, in engineering, it may be a generation, but it's time, it, you can pass down the knowledge in that. It, 20 years would have been much better. Um, Iran also made a decision. I think you see this in what Salehi brought to the negotiations, that they were willing to sacrifice the IR-1s, um, but they weren't willing to sacrifice their work on advanced centrifuges. They paused the work on the IR-2M and the IR-4, but they're going to continue working on the on the on the, the better machines, and they're and they're not a, and, and they're incrementally better. Yeah, the IR-6 and the IRA. That's right. Generations after that. That's right. And so one of the concerns I have is is that what if they succeed with those machines? I mean, I, I know in the um, discussions by the U.S. administration, they, they've kind of, and, and I've heard it from another country, downplay that they won't be able to get these machines to work. But what if they are? And what you'd have is that it, not a crazy scheme by Iran to say, look, we started with these IR-1s, we built, you know, zillions of them, they work very poorly, um, incredibly expensive. Right. We're now retrenching to build much better machines and, and be able to deploy those after this 10-year period. And so I think it, uh, it's a worrisome, it's worrisome. That's all I can say. And if, if, and if Iran fails, great, from our point of view. If it, but if it succeeds, then I think we've got a real problem. Yeah. I'll just say a few things. Uh, uh, if you're kind of thinking about the political discourse and political landscape in the Islamic Republic's elite sectors today, and, and you kind of see this since 2011, the primary priority of the state today is projection of power in the Middle East. Uh, the Islamic Republic, Ali Khamenei today is the most successful imperialist in history of modern Iran. The Shah never had control of the Iraqi state and the deep state, that sort of influence. He never was a material player in Syria. As a matter of fact, the Assad regime was resistant to him. Ali Khamenei has probably the most important external actor in Syria. 
previous Iranian regimes were never main players in Lebanon. Through Hezbollah, Iran has the ability to manipulate Lebanese politics as well as a lethal militia it can deploy in various war fronts. Uh, and of course, in the Persian Gulf, uh, the battered alliances of the United States make that particular subregion a bit more susceptible to Iranian subversion. Uh, imperialism is financially costly. Uh, the economy of 2013 could not have sustained the imperial surge that Iran has embarked upon. So in terms of national priority, whether in expansion of the nuclear capacity or projection of influence in corners of the Middle East where Iran had never had any power, I think outweighs the latter. Uh, so right now the priority of the state is threefold. Number one, consolidation of the regime at home in light of the 2009 Green Revolution, which I think continues to haunt the Islamic Republic. Number two, consolidate and make the economy more resilient, be able to sustain this vast imperial surge which gives Iran a measure of expansionist influence unprecedented in 500 years of Iranian history. And this agreement certainly aids And this that, agreement yeah. enables yeah. both consolidation of power at home, the imperial surge in the region, as well as establishes a pathway for industrialization upon which they can decide whether they have a nuclear weapon or not. So if, if I could paraphrase, you, you, it, it, it allows them to meet their shorter-term goals of consolidation. It, it allows them to exploit remarkable opportunities that they have in the region. And still reach their longer-term goals of being a nu nuclear threshold country within a short amount of time. Yeah, that's right. If I could, I know that uh, Senator Coons has just come in, and, and I certainly want to give him time for questioning. There, there was a letter I would like, you know, by a distinguished group of people uh, yesterday that was released, people on both sides of the aisle, uh, that have served under the administration and obviously served under others. Uh, there's certainly people that I think are respected in our country. They mentioned five issues that uh, need to be addressed more certainly in these closing days. The monitoring and verification piece, which we've spent a great deal of time talking about uh, here and, and exploring. The possible military dimensions, which today we discussed uh, fairly thoroughly. Advanced centrifuges, uh, again, apparently there's still maybe room to limit uh, the amount of advanced centrifuge research and development that takes place. We have not seen that, but maybe that's an area that is open. Uh, sanctions relief, obviously ensuring that sanctions relief doesn't occur until they've actually done the things that need to be done to, to provide that. But the consequences of violations, and uh, I think that's something that as we move into potentially dealing with an agreement, uh, I would just say to members on both sides of the aisle, maybe that's something that if an agreement is reached, uh, Congress needs to speak uh, with strong support towards real consequences. Uh, uh, we had a very controversial briefing. Uh, one of our witnesses suggested going ahead and authorizing uh, the use of military force in the event uh, uh, they violate. Uh, obviously, there was, as you can imagine, a lot of debate around that issue, and I'm not necessarily suggesting that that is the right consequence today. I'm just saying that debate, I think, should be a part of whatever we may do should an agreement be reached, but uh, obviously very concerning. With that, Senator Coons. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you uh, for the many hearings and uh, briefings uh, 
that you and uh, Ranking Member Cardin uh, have convened and led us through. I think this is critical for the Foreign Relations Committee, its members, uh, and the rest of the Senate uh, to be well informed, particularly in these last uh, days or weeks uh, in the conclusion of a possible P5 plus one uh, agreement uh, with Iran. And I'll uh, take up where you were just uh, leading this uh, bipartisan letter that raises five key issues. Um, there's two I'll talk about, uh, consequences of violations and um, the possibility of a future breakout and the role of uh, centrifuge R&D and um, see if we can uh, get some more insight from this terrific panel. If I could, Mr. Albright, just on snapback sanctions, there is um, reported uh, possibly an agreement uh, between the P5 plus one in terms of the mechanism uh, by which um, sanctions would be uh, reinstated uh, if Iran violates a final agreement, should one be reached, uh, and exactly how a dispute resolution a panel would work and how it would be composed and so forth has been uh, discussed in the press. I'd just be interested in your assessment of uh, the strength or weakness uh, of that proposed mechanism uh, and any suggestions you might have for improving it uh, and uh, what other ways you think we might bolster uh, our leverage um, to pressure Iran in the event of uh, future noncompliance uh, with a potential agreement. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, by no means an expert on sanctions. And uh, I, I, my own view, and I've heard this from people who are experts in, in, in the other countries' negotiation team, is the snapback is pretty good as a deterrent, but if it actually is invoked, it's not very likely it'll significantly affect Iran's behavior. And so you don't really have a mechanism to enforce. And, and the lack of that is, is I think, is a, not to throw it back at you, but I think is a major challenge for Congress, that to think through what happens if there are material breaches. And I can, and I can understand. I mean, the, the, I guess going to a military option is an attempt to short-circuit that, um, that issue. I don't think it's sufficient by any means to throw out the last resort as your only resort um, or throw it out on the table, um, not get rid of it. But um, I think it um, needs to be thought through. I don't have any good suggestions, I, I must confess. Um, I think one of the areas to also wor worry about is how, how they're going to take away the UN Security Council sanctions right. and then bring back a lot of them. And then, and then how do you then snap that back? And maybe, maybe there's an easy mechanism to do it. But it, I think it does need to be thought through. The other thing is, is that with Iran, um, the way it's been played out the last many years is they, with the exception of Fordow, they've tended to um, go with small um, violations. And, uh, and there's no mechanism other than political mechanism of the U.S. going to Iran and saying stop that's, that's really on the table. And that I think also has to be thought through because sometimes we know it works on the IR-5, the U.S. went to Iran and said, knock it off, and they did. But on the PMD, everyone's gone to Iran, outside of Iran, and said, knock it off, and they've simply ignored it. So I think it, um, that, has, that, again, also has to be one, one issue that's thought through. Well, Mr. Albright, on this point, if I might, uh, I agree with you that a, a lack of clarity on exactly how U.N. sanctions would be restored uh, in a way that, that wouldn't... Um, allow uh, a veto by one of the permanent UN Security Council members uh, as a future barrier is one of the, I think, key unresolved questions about snapback for the UN sanctions. And 
it's my hope that the mechanism um, adopted, if this all takes place, uh, by the UN Security Council in a replacement resolution would allow for a more a streamlined consideration of that. Uh, and I'd agree. Um, we've got a wide menu of uh, sanctions, both US uh, and multilateral and UN, um, that need to be um, clearly articulated and um, put in place in a gradual way that gives us a series of responses. Um, but if there is a determination by the Iranians to break out um, or sneak out, um, having those snapback sanctions may not be sufficient deterrent. Um, let's get to the future breakout uh, for the few minutes I've got left. Um, there are competing assertions um, in the press and the public by advocacy groups and the administration. Um, one assertion is that this agreement, should it come to pass, uh, will leave Iran with a zero breakout time um, when roughly 15 years expires, uh, and that they will get to a place where it will be virtually impossible to detect their breakout, in large part because there are projections about future centrifuge R&D uh, and the potential strength and speed and capacity of their centrifuges uh, 10 to 15 years from now. A counter-narrative uh, that's being offered by the administration and others in support of this agreement say that continuous inspection of their centrifuge production facilities and uranium mines and mills for 25 years and the additional protocol, which it's presumed Iran will adhere to, uh, will provide the international community with uh, plenty of warning uh, of a breakout attempt beyond the 15 years. Um, please, if all three of you would, just comment on these contradictory explanations um, and, and what the breakout time, in your view, would be if Iran installed um, more advanced centrifuges after 15 years, and what kind of restrictions would the additional protocol provide and the ongoing ability uh, to monitor uh, mines and, and mills provide um, because many have uh, proffered the possibility that what Iran will do is seek the gradual accumulation of ambiguous evasions. I think that's a particularly powerful phrase. Not just a direct assault breakout, but a whole series of accumulated attempts um, at ambiguous evasions. And particularly in the area of centrifuge R&D, um, it is a concern um, that that might then lead to a, a quick uh, breakout capability. So if all three of you would talk about these competing narratives about what happens in years sort of 10 to 15 and then 15 and beyond. Mr. Albright, if you'd start us yeah, off. Yeah, I, I think it, uh, we did it one, just a quick model. I mean, it's a very hard, hard to work that far in, in advance. But we looked at Fordow, where if they did deploy advanced centrifuges like the IR6, the IR8, um, that in Fordow itself, you would have the ability to break out probably within a week at year 15. I mean, it would, or 16, it would depend on also producing 20% enriched uranium. So we took the Iranian statements at face value and assumed they would. So you could have a, a, a situation there where um, breakout could happen. And, and, and it's, the verification is going to be better. There's no doubt about it. But the thing that you worry about in this particular scenario is that they just don't let the inspectors in, They're, or they cripple the remote monitoring, and, and people are scratching their head about what's taking place. And if they, if they can break out in a few days, in a week, they can make one, two, three bombs uh, worth of material in a month. And so you, you worry that they'll interfere in the inspection effort and disrupt it while they try to break out. And so you, you want to... Um, you want to look at that. Um, on, the, on the sneak out, um, you, you worry that Iran may weaken the conditions um, over time, that some of these um, 
mechanisms maybe undermined what, just the way you put it. it was, it's an elegant way to put it. And, um, and then the advanced centrifuges allows for the building of smaller facilities um, that, that they may not be detected. So again, these are projecting in the future. I mean, the purpose of these exercises is to come up with a strategy now that can deal with these. And, and I think we have to be very clear-headed and look at the, the strategy or the scenarios that are, are the most threatening to us and then make sure that the deal or, or what is um, Congress or others do to implement that deal deals with these things. Thank you, Mr. Albright. Mr. Chairman, do you mind if we have the rest of the panel answer the question? No, as a matter of fact, what I might do, though, to interject just one moment, um, our committee, uh, first of all, has had some outstanding hearings. I'm going to step out, and so I'm going to let you guys finish up. We have passed uh, multiple pieces of legislation on a 19-0 vote, so there's huge trust on this committee, and I'm going to turn it over to Chairman Kane uh, here in just a second. I know he'll handle uh, the closeout well. But without objection, I'd like for the record to remain open through the close of business Monday and would hope that uh, uh, unless you're traveling to Tennessee, y'all will answer the questions uh, promptly. And uh, I just want to say I think this has been an excellent way to close uh, a month of tremendous due diligence by the committee, and I hope y'all will stay and ask questions as long as you wish. I would like permission without objection to enter in the letter that you're referring to and that Senator Menendez referred to by members of the Washington Institute and others who've raised questions. And I think one of the functions of passing the Iran Review Act was uh, there were two functions. One to give us a seat back at the table, which we had given away by granting the president national security waivers. But importantly, to be able to ask the kind of questions that we're asking now to hope, hopefully shape the negotiations and hopefully raise concerns uh, that can be alleviated by, by stronger negotiations. So uh, it's my own hope, uh, obviously, that we end up with a very strong agreement. I think most people here want to see that happen. Uh, I obviously have a lot of concerns and there are some remaining issues that I hope we will hold firm on. And just for the record, I, I believe we'd be so much better off uh, because JAPOA has been what it is, we'd be so much better off if we just continued to negotiate and not rush to some artificial deadline on June 30th and try to shortcut some of these very, very important issues. But we thank you very much, not only for your input today, but throughout the course of this whole discussion. Uh, I'll enter this into the record. I'm sorry to give a pause to your answers. And with that, uh, I'm out of here. Chairman Kane is in charge. Thank you, Chairman Corker, and I, and I agree um, that the purpose of that uh, strong bipartisan vote and the enactment uh, by Congress was to ensure that uh, Congress has the opportunity uh, to weigh in, to shape the negotiations, and to set up the structure for ongoing oversight and engagement in the event there is an agreement. Uh, and the purpose of hearings just such as this is for us to get better and better information about some very technical areas like centrifuge R&D. Uh, or future inspections, uh, and to think through some things that are not comfortable to think about, uh, which is scenarios in which this all might be unsuccessful in the long term. Dr. K. Dr. Takei. I'll just say very little to compliment Dave's, uh, what David said, and Jim can also talk about the technical aspect of this far more superior than I can. I, I would say that has, um, Abbas Arakchi, one of the Iranian negotiators, and when Iranian negotiators go home, they tend to be very talkative about what happened. Uh, they tend to do TV interviews, university symposiums. And when he was asked about the issue of advancement of the Iranian nuclear program, 
he said, look, the Atomic Energy Organization told us that they need eight years to develop the most advanced centrifuges that we need. And therefore, we're trying to get an agreement that conforms with that timeline. And now it's eight, it's 10, whatever. So he essentially was saying the sunset clause has to conform with the R&D requirements that were reported by the Atomic Energy Organization. And of course, at that time, when Iran becomes a more of an industrial-sized nuclear power, it's very difficult to detect systematic diversions of resources and establishment of, a, as David said, a small installation operating high-velocity centrifuges is very difficult to detect. And so industrialization of the program makes the verification regime's challenges more acute, if not implausible. Second, I just want to say one thing briefly about snapback measures that you suggested. This agreement, as, as you noted, will have a dispute verification committee that will adjust, that will essentially hear out the disputes that take, and then it'll go to the Security Council. Uh, the Security Council is not a country. It cannot impose economic sanctions. It can recommend and establish the legal predicate for national measures. At that time, U.S. Treasury and other representatives have to go to Europeans. So the current sanctions regime may not be able to come back. I think it'd be very difficult to get the Europeans to reconstitute the oil embargo unless there's a real breakout of the Iranians. So, I mean, I think Italians that are waiting to go back and resume oil purchases because of the economy. I think the current sanctions architecture is not going to be snapped back. Once the UN Security Council advises its member states to restrict their trade, then you have to go back to South Koreans and the Japanese and the Indians and that whole elaborate effort that we have seen for the past uh, several years. Uh, in terms of the fact that this agreement, as I mentioned, is a sunset clause that makes it a disturbing, but I'll, I'll yield to Jim for additional technical explication of your question. Thank you. Dr. Walsh. Um, One final time. I do have some concerns about breakout in the out years if, in fact, they build a very large uh, infrastructure because the larger it is, it introduces some complications. But let me back up for a moment. Again, this committee knows these details backwards and forwards, but I'm not sure the watching public does. Let's be clear about what breakout is. Breakout is the time it takes to produce one bomb's worth of material. And, and so far, there's no country in the history of the nuclear age that has broken out with the purpose of developing one bomb. You know, you test it, and then you don't have any material left over. Uh, the, it does not include the time for weaponization. Unless you're going to take that softball and throw it at someone, you've got to make it into a weapon. And both the DNI, Secretary Panetta, and my friends in the Israeli, Intel, uh, in Israeli Atomic Energy Agency all say they expect that that will take at least a year. So. Breakout time actually doesn't measure the time it takes to get to a weapon. It measures the time you have to produce one softball of highly enriched uranium or plutonium. And breakout is incredibly rare, right? And it will require a change in Iranian policy. The DNI says Iran has not decided to pursue a nuclear weapon. So they would have to change the policy they currently have in order to do that. Now, you know, especially in the absence of details, it's easy to, you know, think of things that could go wrong or things, think of things that could uh, be better, right? I would love total information and everything in the world, but that's not what this is about. As I say in my testimony, the decision criteria are, does it advance our objective in preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon? Is it better than the alternatives? How does it compare to other agreements? This is, according to the former head of Mossad, a historic agreement. I view it as being the strongest multilateral nonproliferation agreement yet, yet negotiated. 
And again, the, the track record here is really, really great. Now, are there risks? Of course there are risks. But there's risks to inaction, and there are risks to sanctions, and there are risks to military action. But when you compare this to the alternatives and compare it to other agreements that have been successful, the NPT, for example, deeply flawed, but overwhelmingly successful. So I think, yes, we should, the, the, the charge of the committee should be to go through and find detail and try to specify what the problems is and then try to fix them. But we also need to step back and have a bigger picture here when we try to evaluate where we're going. As I say, the Israeli military and intelligence people, as dis distinct from the political people, have a very positive view of this. And in fact, in public statements, the Israeli military is saying that they see their threat uh, levels declining in coming years, and they're including Iran in that assessment. So that would seem to speak to the fact that this is an agreement that will have positive effects for Israel's national security. Let me say in closing, with respect to the letter, and I read the letter, and it reminds me of that problem you have when the headline says one thing and the article says something else, that this is, some, this is a letter that has more uh, bark than bite. As I read that letter, I agree with 90% of it. I, I think the sections on, inf on uh, verification are completely consistent with my testimony. I agree completely with that and on the possible military dimensions. Uh, I will remind you that yesterday you had testimony from Graham Allison, who is a signatory of that letter and who supports the agreement and said positive things about a potential agreement. So I think when you get down into the meat of it and the details, the letter is helpful, but it mostly offers criteria that, that most of us would agree with, but feel that we can achieve. Can I ask one more question, Chairman Can I, can I, can I say something? I, I think it, I'd like to disagree with some of the things Jim said. I mean, one is breakout is used in the negotiations as a criteria um, to limit Iran's program. It has nothing to do with whether in a breakout Iran would be producing just one weapon. I mean, I, why would Iran break out? I mean, if they're going to break out, you would expect that they'd be planning to build many weapons, but you want to stop the first one and stop the infrastructure under, that gives them the ability to not, not only make the first, but also the second. So I think it's a, I don't know what, I don't know what to call it. It's, a, it's just a misunderstanding of what the use of breakout is, and, it, and I think for the, I need to respond to that. Also, on, I, there's many people who do not think it would take Iran at least a year to build a nuclear explosive device. I mean, in the IA deliberations, internally at least, they've said that Iran knows enough based on their assessment to build a crude fission weapon. They, they assessed they didn't know enough to build a deliverable system by a missile, uh, like the Shahib-3, but they were working on it. And when they would succeed is a question of time. Um, and, but in terms of building a crude explosive device, I think some people think it could be, in Israel too, um, think it could be done within a few to several months. And again, it, it, it's not going to be delivered by a missile. It could be tested underground. It could be used as in a crude delivery system. But I think we have to be clear that, that Iran can do these things uh, according to IA assessments and Israeli assessments. I, I would assume some of these are shared in the US. It's not, it's not that hard to do it. Um, and we also have to understand that if they get this 25, we use 25 kilograms of weapon-grade uranium in our calculations. If they get that, um, we don't really know where they'll take it. We don't know how to respond. We don't know if it is a couple months or it's a year before they have a weapon. 
And so if you're going to design a verification regime, design a deal, you have to go with what you can affect. And that's why breakout always looks at how much weapon-grading material is needed for a bomb because those facilities, in essence, in the worst case, can be bombed. Once the weapon-grade uranium leaves those facilities, in essence, is produced, you don't know what to bomb. So I, I think it, you, and, and again, I'm saying this just to, because I, I disagree with some of the things Jim's saying, and I think in, in the public debate, particularly, not within the governments, but within the public debate, I think there's been some real misunderstanding of how breakout is used and what it means. Well, thank you, Mr. Albright. I, I might just, if I might, back to Dr. Walsh. On centrifuge R&D, I think many of us have a fairly clear grasp of what the one-year breakout time means, and I would agree with you that the broader watching public may misunderstand it as the ability to go from the accumulation of fissile material to the development of a deliverable, functioning, advanced nuclear weapon, and those are easily conflated and shouldn't be. But one of the core issues we're being asked to, to consider is whether or not the structure of the agreement as proposed leaves Iran with too much freedom to develop advanced, advanced centrifuges and whether it is technically possible in a decade for them to develop centrifuges that are um, an order or two orders of magnitude um, more effective operationally than their best current. And some experts suggest that that's just not feasible, that the barriers to their testing them in cascade, that the barriers to them um, actually knowing how they work are fairly significant in this agreement, that the monitoring provisions are fairly significant, and that even the most advanced um, engineering and, and, and uh, industrial societies, ours included, have found centrifuges uh, tricky things to modernize significantly. Others argue that that's not the case, that this is widely distributed knowledge, um, that the engineering uh, challenges um, of decades ago have now largely been transcended, and that they may, in fact, in the intervening decade, be able to make dramatic uh, orders of magnitude advances. Where do you come down on this, and what advice would you have for us on this as yet unresolved component? Well, I, I think I come, where, uh, come down somewhere in the middle. Um, I don't think it's as easy as some might portray it. Uh, I'm reminded of the fact that Iran has made a series of announcements over years that it was just about to introduce an advanced centrifuge, uh, you know, five, six, seven, eight, and all these great advances that were all press releases. And have nothing to show for it years after the fact. So I think it is a technical challenge. I am reminded of the fact that the 19,000, 18,000 19,000 are still, you know, Pakistani first order centrifuges. Uh, so uh, that would seem to indicate that their progress has not been as great as one might imagine. But I think it is worthy of uh, concern because it's true that if they could build an advanced centrifuge uh, that it would increase the efficiency and reduce the breakout time. I think that's right. Um, I think it's a tough issue though because you know as the United States has certainly insisted in its arms control agreements most agreements provide for research and development. Most non-proliferation arms control you know you stop the thing itself but you allow countries to do R&D and it's very hard to police in any case. But uh, I think it is worth looking at in the out years. But I don't think it's going to be easy, nor will it be quick for them to do that. But I think we, if I can bring it back to a final point here, part of what this process is about is trying to consolidate the Iranian decision not to pursue a nuclear weapon. If a country is determined to get a nuclear weapon, it doesn't matter what agreement. Pakistan said it would eat grass. North Korea. I don't know what its GDP is, but it was able to build a nuclear weapon because its political priority 
political commitment. That's the difference between being a nuclear weapon state and a non-nuclear weapon state when it comes to a technology that's you know, 70 years old. And so while we focus on the technical, and that's important, we want to build as good an architecture as we can, we need to focus on the core issue. And the core issue is political. As the DNI says, Iran's nuclear future is a political decision, not a technical one because they know how to build a centrifuge, whether it's an IR-1 or an IR-9. And so if we're going to live in a future without a nuclear weapons Iran, which we all want, then we need to have a, 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 an agreement that puts Iran on a political track where they never revisit that decision, that keeps them in the decision they've made right now, which is not to pursue a nuclear weapon. I and that's, that's really what this is about. I appreciate the frame you've put on it. I appreciate the chairman's uh, indulgence in time. Uh, I do think that in order for us to have a reasonable assessment uh, of what level of risk we're taking, yes. uh, having more thorough, more broad knowledge of the prior military dimensions, uh, access to scientists, interviews that allow the international community to assess how far they got when they were pursuing actively a nuclear weapon and what the contours are of their potential program is critical. Having an inspection regime um, that allows for uh, ready access to suspect sites, uh, having some real limits on centrifuge R&D, having a, a capacity to return to sanctions in a multilateral and muscular way uh, relatively promptly, uh, and having real consequences for violations are all important parts of the architecture uh, of an agreement, and I know we will all be watching this very closely. Thank you, gentlemen, for your testimony today. Thank you. And I'd like to thank the witnesses as well. Um, your testimony today, you've given us um, a number of important thoughts about the way to analyze a deal if there should be one. You've given us some important thoughts about alternatives if there is not a deal. Uh, and you've also given us some important thoughts about if there is a deal that is accepted, what are some additional steps that Congress might be able to take on the enforcement or consequences side. Those are all important. Just to remind you, if members want to submit questions for the record by the close of Business Monday, we would ask that you try to respond to those promptly. The last thing I'll just put on the record, um, there was a colloquy between the witnesses and Senator Menendez around this issue of whether the additional protocol, Iran's accession to that, that was announced in the framework on April 2, is something that has to be ratified by the Iranian parliament, or is there just going to be a claim that we will abide by it? And I think that is a very important question. There was testimony before this committee in January by Tony Blinken that such a provision would require, under Iranian law, the Iranian parliament to ratify it. That, uh, that was something that was mentioned, and that became important as we debated the role of the Corker review bill. If the Iranian parliament has to ratify a deal, then so should Congress. <laughs> yes. Um, and so that has been a claim that's been made often, and I think to the extent that these hearings are being observed by folks with the administration and even folks connected to the negotiators, you know, that, that notion that uh, the accession to the additional protocol, which in the April 2 framework was a permanent accession, it wasn't to run out after 20 years or 30 years, uh, would have to be ratified by the parliament. That's something that we're going to be looking at very, very carefully. And if they back away from ratifying and just say, oh, don't worry, we'll abide by it, that would be a weaker agreement, I think, uh, according to the entire uh, committee. So that colloquy surfaced an issue that could be an important one. Uh, thank you again for the testimony. With that, the hearing is adjourned.